Hello and welcome to Pitch Masters with me, Danny Fontaine. This week I speak to psychologist Dr. Kimber Shelton, who talks about the differences and considerations that people of colour face when they are pitching, as well as cognitive distortion, all or nothing thinking, mirror neurons, eye contact and a whole lot more. And if you have 30 seconds, please leave me a review on your streaming platform of choice. I hope you enjoy the episode. Dr. Kimber Shelton, how lovely to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Very happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, it's pleasure is all mine, of course. So why don't you start by giving us a little bit about your background and how you got to the position that you're in today? Sure. Yes, I'm a licensed psychologist in Dallas, Texas, and I have a degree in counseling psychology from the University of Georgia. I specialize in areas of cultural diversity, trauma, LGBT, LGBT issues, and relationships. And how did I get here? I got here through <laughs> a lot of hard work and preservation. No, I had a lots of great mentors along the way who encouraged me and affirmed the work that I've been doing. So definitely, I don't think you get anywhere by yourself. It's a community. Yeah, I agree to that. So what was it that made you go into this career path in the first place? Did you have a passion for it for any reason? Or did it just like my career, which I totally fell into by accident? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think my natural style is I like giving advice and telling people what to do. So it was pretty natural <laughs> for me to go into being a therapist. However, I learned very early on that this is not only about advice giving, or it's actually rarely mm. about advice giving. It's about being able to listen to people and connect with people. In terms of the areas that are most important to me, I can attribute that to my family. So I grew up lower middle class, and then as I got older, probably like middle, middle, middle class. Yeah. And, but my parents come from very impoverished families. My grandparents were very poor people. And I was growing up in New York State, but my family is originally from West Virginia. Frequently would mm -hmm. visit my family in West Virginia. My grandmother, who was uneducated, she was on government assistance. Uh, she worked minimum wage jobs her entire life. I would go out with her and I would notice how other people treated my grandmother. They talked mm -hmm. down to her. They were rude to her. Sometimes it was as if she was invisible. I would be 10, 12, going with my grandmother to the doctor and find myself speaking up to the office people about the way that they were treating my grandmother. Wow. I'm sure I didn't connect these dots until much later, but my passion for working with people who are disenfranchised and who are historically and still currently marginalized, I think stems from seeing my grandmother not being able to have or use her voice. So having a voice and being able to use it to empower other people is very important to me. How do you aim your services at those people who are more marginalized? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you Google me, you it was very clear about the populations I work with and my specializations. And that's important too, that that representation does matter. So for someone who's coming to see me, Ideally, they're not going to be concerned or fearful about understanding them or be able to connect with their identities 
because I put it out there that your identity is important to me and I'm going to invite you to bring your whole space into the therapy room. And then another way of connecting with these communities and these populations is not only through the clinical work that I do, so that one-on-one therapy, but then also my speaking, my writing, my service engagement is around improving the mental health services to people of color and LGBT individuals. So it's important to do it on a one-on-one basis, but working with that one client, yes, it will be impactful for them. What's more important is that we're creating more systemic and long-lasting, sustainable impact on those who have marginalized identities. And obviously, psychology is a huge topic, and there's many different fields within it. Did you go into certain fields with that kind of view in mind? And and do you need different skills to be helping people like that? Um, so in terms of psychology, there is this idea of being culturally competent. And this will certainly stretch out beyond psychology and therapy. And then we see this a lot in organizations and different agencies right now, this idea of being culturally competent, being culturally responsive, being culturally sensitive. Because to cater to one market, that just doesn't work anymore. That This is a global market, so we have to be able to connect with the diversity of people who we're going to be coming in contact with. Um, So in terms of therapy, though, or psychology, that we think of cultural competence as we have to have knowledge of our own cultural selves, who am I as a cultural being, and then how that's going to impact my relationships with other people. Uh, We have to have knowledge of other cultures. So being knowledgeable about um, the Black community, being knowledgeable Mm -hmm. about the Muslim community, being knowledgeable about the queer community. And then we have to have skills to implement interventions that are going to be helpful to those individuals. That historical types of therapy are based on white, middle-class, heterosexual, Mm. cisgender men, which is not going to represent a large population that's going to be coming in for help. So we have to stretch beyond that. And we can't just use interventions that were designed for them, which means that that way of being or thinking is the norm or it's a standard. And then all those other ways of being or thinking are other or mm-hmm. substandard to that. So use the interventions that are going to be specifically impactful to those uh, people who are going to be coming in with these identities that aren't historically represented within whatever the field is. And of course, those historical views go back, you know, a hundred years or more. Do you think that psychology is still changing and evolving based on more acceptance and openness that we're not all the same as human beings and therefore we don't all need the same kind of therapy and treatment for want of a better word. Mm -hmm. Absolutely I do think that it's changing that we see a lot more representation there's still a lot of work to be done in the U.S. I'm not sure what it looks like in the U.K. I'm gonna imagine it looks pretty similar But there's a lot of work to be done in terms of representation that only um, two two to four percent of psychologists in the United States identify as people of color. And we are close to being 50 percent of the population. So we need to have a lot more people of color who are psychologists in this country. 
But in terms of theories and interventions, there has been changes because there are more people of color in the field who are doing this research and creating these interventions. So yes, it is changing. And there's a lot more models that focus on holistic wellness and the diversity of wellness, but there's a lot of room to grow there too. Um, But outside psychology, I think organizations are also pushing that because again, having to work in a global market that they need their workers to be able to work well with each other, to be able to communicate with someone who doesn't look like them. So it really drives the industry of being able to have these intercultural connections and the strong intercultural communication. You're an author and a speaker as well. Tell me a bit more about those two things. I'm the co-editor and author of a handbook on counseling African-American women that was released in February. It's been doing really, really well. That it, it focuses on understanding the lived experiences of Black women, because again, not all mental health professionals are going to be familiar with that. The way that symptoms present for Black women can be different than the way symptoms are presenting for other women, for our peers. So it talks about how symptoms manifest within us. And then again, those skills, it gives some specific interventions and ideas in terms of working with Black women. And I also speak on topics relating to overall mental wellness and development, and then specific to cultural diversity, how we can have a more meaningful and impactful relationship with people of color that we're working with. That we can't just be in a session speaking to empower people of color or minoritized groups um, without fully being able to understand that person and have that person bring all parts of themselves into the therapy work. So providing trainings, helping therapists to better um, appreciate and understand the experiences of people of color so that therapy is going to be competent, their needs will be met. So I think throughout this hour we're going to be dipping in and out of diversity and and gender let's talk about pitching for a moment and by pitching I'm, I'm using a very broad brush we can talk about presenting selling ideas we can talk about public speaking as well any any time we're in front of an audience and we're trying to convince them of our idea essentially now you're a psychologist what kind of areas of your work do you think are relevant to that as a topic? Um, So for one is having that ability to express your message well, that we can have anxiety that stops us from being able to even start to even imagine whatever that idea or concept is that we want to get across. And then once we do develop that idea, how do I express that to other people in a way that they're going to hear me and they are going to want to learn more about this product or they're going to want me to be a part of their team. And then once we get that opportunity or we are able to sell that product or we're able to join that team, then now that I'm here, what do I do? How do I feel comfortable here? So that first piece of it is that we can feel like, I think there's a book that everyone has a million dollar idea. And I do believe that. I think that we all have a million dollar idea. It's just being able to execute that idea. But we can be our worst critics and we can hold ourselves in being able to even have the opportunity for those opportunities. And one thing that we talk about in psychology is this idea of cognitive distortions, mm-hmm. which is errors in the ways that we think. And there's a number of different kinds of distortions and that we all use them from time to time. But we can recognize that we're having this faulty thinking or 
I don't know this term, but this irrational thought, if we're aware of it, then we can do some work around it. Like we have all or nothing thinking that my design has to be perfect or it's going to be a failure. Right. Um, I have to get this amount of money. Otherwise, this is just not going to work out for me at all. This polarized thinking doesn't leave any room for flexibility so that can end up hurting us. Um, so that if this company doesn't take this, then that just means nobody's going to want this from me. And and of course, those thoughts that we have plague us for sometimes months before we know we're going to have to do a, a talk or a presentation. Mm-hmm. How, how do you deal with it? Do you, how, how do you personally deal with anxiety and nerves and trying to ensure that that um, cognitive distortion doesn't take over the way that you think? Mm-hmm. Well, for one thing is the realization that anxiety and excitement have the exact same physiological reactions. Mm-hmm. So you think about going on a first date, your heart's racing, maybe your hands are a little bit sweaty, you have butterflies in your stomach. How are you interpreting that? I'm super anxious about this date. What if they don't like me? That's going to be a terrible date. So then we're going to take that anxiety into the date. Or those same physiological reactions. I am so excited. I am looking forward to meet this person. This is going to be so much fun. It's how we're interpreting it. So we want to make sure that we're reading our bodies right. That whatever the symptoms are or the the, um, things that are happening in our body, understanding what is that actually telling me? And then we get to have some control over that, that just because my heart is racing, it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily anxious. It could be that I'm excited. So being more in touch and in tune with what our body is communicating with us and not to assume that any physiological arousal is distress or anxiety or fear, because it might not actually be true. It might be right. excitement. It could be enthusiasm um, that we're actually experiencing. And then when it is that excitement and that enthusiasm, it usually helps us. It's to our advantage because we're going to be more thoughtful or we'll be more on point or we're more focused. So again, making sure we're interpreting what our body is telling us correctly. And then we're anxious in this situation. There's been a time that we've been anxious before in another situation. So how do we get through that? To get to the place of I'm ready to pitch or I'm about to go speak, or I'm about to do that, this other thing, that we've gotten through so many other hurdles or challenges. How do we make it through those things? A lot of times, not reinventing the wheel. It's just doing the things that have worked for us in the past. So being able to go back and touch with, oh, I called my friend who is great at calming me down before I went right. in. Gave me those words of encouragement. I'm a spiritual person, so I pray before I go in and I do these things. Or I make sure that the night before, I am not doing any social media and I'm just focused on making sure I get my rest in and being at peace. However we centered ourselves before, we can do those same things. And then there's a whole host of mindfulness things. We could be doing deep breathing. We could be practicing relaxation strategies. Um, We could be using essential oils, lavender, all those things. It's just figuring out what works best for us. And do you have any practical advice for those people who... I do meet people who who really struggle to 
apply those things. So they understand the concept and they understand the mischievous subconscious mind that we have that the hells is all of these negative things. But whatever they do, they can't stop those overwhelming nerves, especially on the day of the, the pitch or the presentation. Is there any practical advice that you have for people? So practical advice, I would say, would be to be compassionate to yourself and to be mm. empathetic to yourself. That that anxiety, the stress that we feel, again, our body is trying to communicate something to us. And it's communicating like, this is a really big deal for us. Or right. um, this is something that is could change everything about our lives. And our body is trying to express that, but it's expressing in a way that's not helpful for us in the moment. So we can honor what our body is trying to do. It's saying, hey, you need to be as ready and as prepared as possible for this. Thank you, body. I, thank you, mind. Yeah. I know what you're trying to do. I appreciate you. Good looking out. But I need you to break it down. I need you to come down some. So instead of attacking ourselves, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Why am I feeling this way? I can't stop my thoughts from racing. Just to take a moment of appreciation. I know what you're trying to do. This is important. Thank you for trying to protect me or make sure that I'm as prepared as possible. But yeah, I'm going to need you to bring it down some so we can go in there with a different attitude or a different perspective. And then in doing that or taking that break, so our nervous system, we don't have control over everything in our body, but something that we can't have some control over is our nervous system. So um, being able to slow down our nervous system by taking deep breaths means that we slow down our heart rate. So now our heart's not going to be racing as fast, which then means that we're slowing down how quickly the blood is racing through the rest of our body, which means now our shaking or our jitteriness, it has to slow down. It has mm. to. Mm. Um, our thoughts, they have to slow down when our breathing is slowed. That is impossible for us to take deep breaths and our hearts to still be going like this. It's just as physiologically right. possible. So we can slow down our nervous system, slow down our internal nervous system. Then we can slow down those physical reactions of anxiety that we're having. And we can slow down our thought process so that then we go into that room or we go on that Zoom call, we are ready to give that pitch or we're ready to give that presentation. I think that's excellent advice. I really like this concept of it's not a fight against our negative thoughts. It, it's almost embracing the thoughts and the feelings that we have, especially the physical ones, and thinking, thank you. Thank you, body. Thank you, mind. I really like that. Okay, so the second thing you mentioned after anxiety was how can we express ourselves in a way that our audience will really hear us? I like that. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, there's so many ways that this happens and it can bring in some ethical considerations, whether there are some moral considerations and how we're getting our point across. So industrial and organizational psychology, a lot of this is founded in that. Social psychology, there's so much of that is founded in that in terms of how we're able to connect with people and to get them to understand us and to get them to align with us and that there can be an emotional element to it. So if we can activate people emotionally, they're going to like us more. Mm. They're going to think that we're nicer. 
and they're going to be more aligned with us. So little things like eye contact, and again, there's going to be cultural nuances to this, but there's small things like eye contact that research shows that if two strangers stare at each other in the eyes for 30 seconds, they feel more connected to that person and they like that person more. They don't know anything about this person. They have not spoken to this person. But just by maintaining eye contact for 30 seconds, they feel a closer connection to them. Mm. So we're making these emotional connections through our eyes that that can help. Again, there's going to be different cultural nuances to that because some cultures will see eye contact as disrespectful where others will not. And that we can draw people in. And this can be more of the manipulation side of it but through our compliments or our appreciation of them by making them feel good about themselves can help them to then feel good about us. So so when I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, I was going out to work really early in the morning, like 7 a.m. And there was a person who I assumed was homeless walking down the street. But as I'm coming out to my car, this person says, oh my goodness, you look fabulous. Your hair is great. <laughs> like, you go, girl. I was like, yeah. okay, I'm feeling good. <laughs> nice. All right, thank you. Wow. And then they're like, can I have a dollar? Do you have a dollar? I'm like, ah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Me. Got me. Got me. <laughs> but I'm so guessing you gave them a dollar. <laughs> and I gave them the dollar. All yeah. right, it was so worth like, it. <laughs> that was good social psychology you're using. Yeah. <laughs> and how do we apply that to a whole audience rather than just one person. Yeah, so, hey, it's so great to be here with you all today. You're fabulous. Go ahead and give yourselves a round of applause for being here. High five the person next to you because you all showed up today and you're ready, you're motivated for that. So we're giving these broad compliments. We are engaging them emotionally, appreciating them on this larger scale. So even if we can't connect individually with them, we can still have a lot of control over the energy of that um, place. And again, that's nuanced, of course, depending on the environment. We we wouldn't want to suggest high fives in a business pitch, or we might do in some of them, but, but still thanking people genuinely and authentically for giving up their time, for example, could be one way. Or on that more individual level of, oh, I also went to the university that she went to, and that was a great university. And I know this thing about this person that you have a dog. Um, Oh, I saw when I was researching the company, how you are um, allow pets to come in or those sorts of things. So we connect with those things that we know about that individual person. Again, it feels like a compliment. It's good research. But yeah. the, there is a form of, I'm trying to get you to align with me. And and I believe the term for this is priming? Priming. In effect? Yeah. Right. <laughs> priming our audience. Is there anything else we can do to prime our audience? So before we've even started our pitch, to get them to think, okay, I want to listen to this person. Yeah. So some of these just really classic techniques, like that foot in the door technique, of we ask for something small. And then once we get that small thing, so we have our foot in the door, then we come and we ask for that larger thing. Um, Then I know I've signed up for a free webinar on this thing that's gonna help my business. And as soon as I sign up for that webinar, for $9.99, you can also have all this stuff. Right. Okay, so I'm more likely to 
do that since I've signed up for it. So if we can get a small yes or a small win, then we can open up for that larger idea, that larger pitch. And then there's things that we even do to get that to happen. So um, that we know that our brain, we have these mirror neurons in our brain, which means that our brain is going to mirror what we see. Mm. Have you ever been in a coffee shop and you see two people speaking to each other? They might have the same um, body constellation, the way they're sitting matches each other. They both have their legs crossed or they're both leaned in. And that could be a process of these mirror neurons that are being activated. This We use this in therapy all the time. If a client is coming in very anxious, want to calm them down. So mm. I'm going to lower my voice. I'm going to speak more slowly. I'm going to look more relaxed, hoping that they will, the mirror neurons in their brain is going to slow them down and that they will match me. So we can use those mirror neurons in our pitch, our presentation too. Um, we can see this when we're in a restaurant and we're ordering food. The service says, and would you like a dessert? So I'm nodding my you can't Nodding your head, yeah, yeah. The server, as they're saying, would you like a dessert? They're nodding their head. So then you right. nod your head. Yes. <laughs> I would like a dessert. Yeah. Um, would you like some coffee? And they're saying that while they're nodding their head. The mirror neuron said, I'm nodding my head as well. So we're doing these small, very subtle things, our body movements, and we can use those mirror, those mirror neurons to encourage our audience to get on board or align with us by just these small things like nodding our head or how we're keeping or holding our body. Now, this might be a basic question, but with mirroring, because I've heard about it lots before, how do we know when to mirror them or when to try and be the mirror? Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. So if we maybe want to show that, hey, I can be a part of the team, then maybe we're mirroring them and what they look like. Uh, if we notice, I might be losing them. Let me try to get them looking different so that they could be more aligned with me. Um, and the, I mean, it would be very strategic and intentional. So as I am shifting the part of my pitch that is now going to be, okay, this is what I need from them. This is what I mm. need from you. So then maybe I want you to look more like me versus of this is what I have to offer you then I'm going to be looking more like you. Now, the other thing you mentioned a minute ago was getting them to say yes to a small thing. Mm -hmm. Now, that almost feels like one of those urban myths if you get them to sort of say yes more than once. Is, is there truth in that? Does that really work? There is, yeah. If we can get people to say yes to something three times, then when we actually ask for what that thing is that we want, they're more likely to say yes. And it doesn't even have to be things that are related to whatever that pitch is, or that um, presentation is. So, oh, it's really nice weather today, isn't it? Yes. Right. Yeah. And the commute in, it wasn't that bad, was it? Uh, well, that would be yes. It was a nice commute in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it was a nice co commute in. Yeah. Um, the hotel, that breakfast was great this morning. Yes, it was. And now my pitch. So and then you ask for a million dollars under your breath and <laughs> cough at the same time. Good. <laughs> yes, you can wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And it does, isn't it interesting? You've mentioned the word manipulation a couple of times. And this is something that I have thought about so much because I read a lot of books on psychology and especially sales psychology. And there's a really interesting 
line around what is moral, what is helping you to win your audience when you know you've got something great that you think is of real value to them, and what is more used car salesman um, of you know selling selling something by almost tricking people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not really sure what my question is here, but do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's, I think it's a, a fine line. I mean, I would ultimately say it's whatever that thing is that you're trying to sell or uh, whatever your pitch is or what it is that you're trying, trying to join. Is this something that actually is necessary? Is this something that would be helpful versus I feel like I'm being scammed or I'm being convinced mm. to do something that's actually not going to be for my greater good. So the method to getting there could look the same, but I think it's ultimately like, what is it that you're trying to actually get someone to buy into that could ultimately lead them to feel like, oh, this was a good investment or no, I feel like this was wrong or this didn't make me feel good. But if we have faith in our product, um, we have a great idea that needs to be shared. Um, we will want it just on its own merit. So the things we've talked about so far are fairly generic tips. They are tips for human beings who all have nervous systems and we, you know, we all get nervous and anxious and we all need to know how to present ourselves and express ourselves. How is this different for different ethnic and diverse groups of people? How is it different for black people, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so to your point, we've been talking about, okay, how am I going to make sure that I'm prepared? And what are my talking points when I go in to pitch this product? As I'm actually in there, how I'm going to be engaging with these individuals in a way that they're going to hear me? And then afterwards, okay, then, you know, I get to kind of get regrouped and either wait for a response or get ready for my next pitch. Ideally, that's what we would want that process to be like for anyone who is going to be doing a pitch or who is about to try to offer um, a product or to do a talk. But unfortunately, that's not the experience for everyone. That even before that pre-pitch or that preparation, that for people of color and other minoritized groups, there's additional layers of labor that they have to go through before they can even get to the I'm ready to start preparing for my pitch. I'm ready to start preparing for my presentation. That has nothing to do with the actual product or the skill that they're trying to convey or to sell and has to do with with the environment's interactions with who they are as a person or their identities. So as an example, as a Black woman who is going to pitch a product about sustainably made coffee mugs that there's this emotional labor that she'd have to work through. Okay, so when I go in there as a Black woman, how might they perceive me? What are their, gonna, what are their thoughts about Black women going to be? And what biases may they hold? So there's that emotional labor of having to understand that I could be faced with biases. I could be faced with um, discrimination when I go in there and I have to keep myself emotionally regulated for that. Okay, what is my hair going to look like? So I have natural hair, which is the hair that just naturally grows out of my hair, which may be of a coarser or kinky texture. 
what does my hair like? Do I need to straighten my hair? Do I need to have my hair in a particular style? Because I don't want my hair to be a distraction. And that there's this idea that Black women's, again, the natural hair that grows out of their head as being unprofessional. So here in the U.S., there are still 31 states where Black women can be discriminated in terms of employment based on what their hair texture and what their style looks like, which is ludicrous. But that's something that Black women have to contend with. Are they going to think I'm professional if I have two-strand twist, or if I have locks in my hair, or if I go in there with braids, or my hair is wrapped up. So having that emotional and that psychological labor. There's this phenomena of, in some spaces, being too Black, and then other spaces, not being Black enough. So how do I convey myself that is not going to pigeonhole me, that I need to be connected with but then how is my voice, my English? Are those things going to be a barrier to me being able to pitch this product? That, again, her white um, women peers may not have to deal with or contend with. And so there's that entire emotional labor that that Black woman would be experiencing. And that's a cost to her. Because instead of being able to focus on her pitch, she's having to think about what I want to do with my hair. I had a friend, uh, a Black woman friend, who was applying for a high executive level job. And there was a group of us. We had an hour-long conversation about, does she wear her natural hair or does she wear a wig? When we could have been talking about, hey, you got this. This is going to be great. What are you going to be talking about? These are the things that you have to offer. But we're talking about wigs. And that's a waste of an hour, which could have gone towards something else, motivating her. And so there's that emotional labor. And then there's these microaggressions that Black women and other people of color experience. Microaggressions are small, subtle communications that are an insult to that person, um, that are meant to hurt or harm that individual. And they're micro because they're often innocuous or very subtle. That it is comments like, um, oh, you went to Harvard? Yes. I did go to Harvard, and but why was it said in that way? Like, what did that mean? So it crosses a question, and that's emotional labor, because now I'm like, why was it said that way? And that you've already moved on to something else. But I'm still stuck in that place, and now I have to catch up, and I'm distracted. There's these things, again, like those comments like, oh, you don't talk like other Black people. Wait, because I sound educated? So then does that mean that Black people don't sound educated? And now there's this uh, dilemma of, do I confront this or do I just leave it alone? Pitching to a team, do I want to confront that microaggression to these people that I'm asking money from? Yeah, that probably not, that might not go over so well. Um, another microaggression that Black women experience is they're often azoticized or they're eroticized. Prior to getting married, I know when I was um, dating and I would be doing online dating, I heard all these things like, oh, your lips are this, and I love Black women because their bodies are like this, and your booty is like that. Okay, so you don't actually care about who I am, but physio physio excuse me, physiologically, when you think of Black women, you think about these very stereotypical, very stereotypical things, 
And that's what you're focused on. So it feels more like eroticization or fetishism versus I'm actually truly interested or, um, so those sorts of things. So this black woman, as she is making her way to that boardroom to do that pitch for her product on her way there, that the looks that she may have gotten as she's been headed to that office and having to either squash that or to confront those. Um, when she gets to that office space, hi, my name is such and such. Okay, well, what are you here for? Why was it said that way? Would, that, would it have been said that way to a white man? So there's all these small things that have a large impact. And so they're called microaggressions because they're these little things that amount to a lot. And we like them to like mosquito bites. Yeah, one mosquito bite is annoying, but 100 mosquito bites can kill you. So when you're getting these small bites throughout the day and then throughout your lifespan, they do. They have a... Um, a chronic harm to who you are in terms of how you see yourself, how you present yourself, how you understand yourself. And they have physiological impacts in terms of anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, those things. So all that to say is there is this emotional labor, there's this psychological labor that people of color, minoritized groups are having to deal with before they're even able to get to the point of being able to pitch. And that's exhausting. If there were to be a solution to this, I'm not I'm not sure that there is really. There's certainly not a quick solution. Part of it is educating, of course, and um and, and leadership and all of those things that, that are that are so important but a very, very slow burn. Do you have any advice for people listening to this, perhaps especially young people of colour who, who are in the early stages of their career? And they face these microaggressions. But just like you said, it probably never feels appropriate to necessarily confront them. So is it about resilience? Is it about mental preparation? Is there anything that you can tell these people that might help them? Yeah. So the true solution would be a systemic change and cultural change that we're not having experience those microaggressions or that those oppressions aren't existing in the same way. But on that individual level, like we were talking about early, recognizing what's happening, I think it's really important because if we're unaware of what's happening, we can internalize it as there's something wrong with me mm. or I'm doing, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. Well, really it might have nothing to do with you. It's just simply racism. It's simply right. sexism. It's gender racism that you're experiencing. So being able to understand actually what is happening and then being able to externalize that. So there's this phenomenon, the imposter syndrome. On As we were saying earlier, that generic understanding that anybody can have imposter syndrome. Feeling like, I don't belong. I'm not good enough. How did I get here? And they're going to find out that I'm a phony or a fraud. And then we do two things. We either are become perfectionists. So I have to do everything right. Everything has to be done to the detail. I can't make a mistake. Unfortunately, none of us are perfect. So we're not going to be able to sustain that. And it ends up hurting us. And then we can also go on that other pole where we just deteriorate. I don't belong here. I believe I don't belong here. I'm just not going to be able to perform a function. And I quickly burn out. Yeah. But typically, when we have that imposter syndrome, it's not the first time that we've had it. We've had it before. We're able to work through it. Once we're actually 
um, have made that pitch or we're in that role, we become more comfortable. The imposter syndrome fades away. But we look at it as a very internal thing that I am responsible for how I feel or I believe I'm imposter and that's why now it's showing up that way. But that's not always true. There are also external things that make us feel like an imposter. So when I go in to do that pitch and I'm looking at all the pictures on the wall and there's only white people, this communicates to me that I don't belong here. We're not used to people like you. You are different. So it's not just the internal feeling that I have of not feeling like I belong. This building shows me that I may not belong in this space. So it's not me that I feel uncomfortable, it's the space. So being able to recognize those things as microaggressions or as racism uh, to help us externalize it so we're not internalizing that and we can still can have an impact on us, but it doesn't have to have as significant of an impact on us. And there is a financial cost to this. So if this board is racist and then they don't pick up my product, financially, I'm hurt by that. Yeah. But then there is an emotional consequence of, and that was not going to be the environment for me to work in. Right. If that pitch was like that, that working experience was likely going to be much worse. But my pockets are imp- impacted because mm. I didn't make that sale. Do you advise people to leave jobs when they face these kind of microaggressions and, and, and worse? It's not that we do not belong or we should not show up in those spaces. That it's not us. It's that that's them or it's that situation or it's that environment. So a quick aside, several years ago, um, I was the co-chair for the Texas Psychological Association and Diversity Division, um, and then connected to the larger American Psychological Association. Um, So connected to APA, the American Psychological Association, we go to the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, to advocate for mental health parity, that mental health professionals need to be paid the same way that health, baby, uh, physical health professionals are paid because our mental health is just as important as our behavioral health and that there needs to be insurance coverage for that. So that's the pitch. That's what I'm supposed to go and talk to my state representatives about, that we need to have mental health parity. And this was in 2016, which, which was just after Donald Trump was elected. And that year, and even pre, prior to that year, the rhetoric that was coming from my state representatives that were coming from these Trump supporters that was coming from the newly elected Donald Trump was this hate rhetoric. You know, people of color are Mexicans are racist and they're not good enough and they're sending these terrible people over and these ideas that racism doesn't exist and there's all these terrible things about people of color. So in a town hall meeting, before we went to go speak to the representatives, so to make this pitch to them, to the larger psychological community, myself and several other individuals who identify as people of color express, this is really hard for us. This is really emotionally challenging for us to go talk to our state representatives about mental health parity when they have denigrated and dehumanized our identities for a year. It's going to be really hard to be in this space. And it's going to be even harder to be in this space as a Black American 
where my ancestors literally built this building and they were not represented in this building. That's hard for me emotionally to do. Didn't say anything about, I'm not able to talk about how to say these talking points that mm. the eight has given to mm. me. It was the emotional consequence that I was experiencing. So a older white male psychologist, he comes up to me and he grabs my hand and he's just shaking my hand. And he's holding my hand for a long time. Which one, why are you touching me? Right. But he continues to shake my hand and he says, I am so sorry that you feel that way. Okay, uh, I would be happy to go over those talking points with you because I want you to go in there feeling good and feeling confident about what you're going to say. At no point had I communicated, I don't feel confident in what I'm going to say in these talking points. Right. I mean, it's literally four bullet points. I can get through those bullet points. It is emotionally what it means for me to go in this space with individuals who have dehumanized me is the issue or concern. So just not even understanding or not even getting the point and the message. And I think just a, an example of the sort of experiences that people of color have, especially in professional environments that get misunderstood or unheard. But in that moment, I knew that this is, this is you and you are part of this system that is hurtful. It wasn't that I did not ex express or communicate myself well. That's you and your inability to see how you are a part of the oppression. So that was helpful. One is being able to disconnect from that racism, that sexism, that gender racism. That's not, that's not me. Two, fortunately, I was there with other people of color who had the same experience. Yeah. So we were able to support each other. And how important it is that we have those places of community. That the oppression that we feel, the trauma that we feel is collective right. and also our healing can be done collectively. So for that individual person who is facing these microaggressions or those racial traumas, being able to have a community of people who understand and mm -hmm. get it to be able to turn in that community. And that can be just the simplest thing. Like, did you just hear? What, oh, you heard what he said. Okay. Like we don't have to even say anything, but like that yeah. look of is that. Okay. Just had to do a check that that was absolutely ridiculous. Um, or being able to have those deeper dialogues of this is what our experience was. This is what our collective experience was together. So I've got to ask, how did the, the actual speech go at the House of Representatives? <laughs> Went in, did those talking points, and I think I had a stiff drink after that. Right. <laughs> you got through it. Did it make a difference? I think it, in terms of mental health parity, it makes a difference in terms of the way that racism is showing up in this country. Absolutely not. It did not make a difference. Um, but so then there was a consequence of that too. So that was in 2016 and I haven't been a part of my professional organizations until this year. So I had to back away from it because it was just those ongoing microaggressions, my personal life, not being the priority of the way that I needed to, I had to step away from something and that was the thing that I stepped away from and I'm just now getting back involved in. Because again, this work is exhausting. It's important work, but it's still very tiring work. Can I ask you a personal question? Maybe. <laughs> you don't have to answer. I've noticed that you've straightened your hair today. Mm -hmm. What was going through your head 
while you were mentally preparing to speak to me, a stranger, a cisgender male white man? Yeah, I actually, I love that you asked that question because <laughs> this was a thought process that I had. So when we first met for our pre-production meeting, my hair was naturally styled and it's yeah. natural curls. And typically when I'm doing professional talks, my hair is in its natural state. Um, and that's important because that, that representation is really important. And then also just in terms of preserving the health of my hair, I rarely straighten it or put heat to my hair. But uh, so I'm in Dallas, Texas now, and I was recently in Atlanta. Atlanta hairstylists, amazing. They know how to get the hair right. They know yeah. what they're doing. So I had my hair um, pressed out while I was there. And that those press outs are expensive. So mm. like, I know that we have this talk today, but I am not letting water hit my head just for the sake of this talk. But I did think about that. Yeah. I did think about how am I going to look? And even earlier this week, I did a talk with another organization and my hair was straight and it was specifically for black women. So I did have considerations of how are these black women going to perceive me right. because my hair is straight and they don't actually know that or they don't um, know that my hair is straightened. It's not using a relaxer. There's not a chemical in it that is straightening my hair. It's just pressed out and what the impact of that could be. So, yes. I thought about all those things versus what are the talking points that I want to be saying here? What's the points I want to be getting across? What's my message? All these thoughts that go through my head in terms of what is my hair looking like today? Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine. I'm so, sometimes I think I'm over inquisitive about these things because there's so much of the world that I don't know because I've, never been exposed to it and like you said earlier my thought process is how can I rehearse this line so it comes over in the best way and how can I use powerful body language I don't stop to think about what color my audience is or or really how they perceive me as a as a white man it's it's enlightening to say the least I think and I, and mm -hmm. I it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it because I think that more people like me need to be enlightened yeah. Yeah. And so when we think about you, that that you are a white man, but even how you present maybe going into a war room 20, 30 years ago would have been a challenge for you, like having your hair in a ponytail, having a beard, um, having these tattoos, all those things could simplify or uh, exemplify that yeah. you are not professional, um, that you are not qualified for that. But we don't see those same sort of discrimination with white men today, where actually it's very in vogue or it's yeah. hip or it's cool to have tattoos and yeah. you know, 90% of white men have beards now. And yeah. all, all these things are acceptable and considered professional. Yet, like I was just saying, here in the U.S., there's still 31 states that don't have um, protection against black women, just the natural hair that grows mm. out of our head um, that we can be discriminated against and there's these still professional standards of uh, standards of professionalism that are still very much white based and there's a lot more flexibility in what that white based professionalism looks like that people of color still may not be able to experience or to be a part of and even think about like um jay-z and mm -hmm. what his hair looks like right 
and to know that that's intentional. Right. The way that his hair is styled is intentional to represent that Black men can be powerful, they can be professional with whatever hairstyle that they have. And that he actually has a very traditional African hairstyle that when it's looked at, oh, why is his hair wild or unprofessional? No, traditionally his hair looks very much aligned with what his African ancestry is. And and so things like that, people in positions of power like Jay-Z obviously have a, I think, a positive effect on, on the perception of, of, of those different communities. Do you think Beyonce has a negative perception in that sense because of the amount of weaves and wigs that she, she goes for? We try to pigeonhole what Black women can look like. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate Black women. I'm not going to look like how you want me to look. I'm going to look like how I want to look. And I think there's also an issue with the idea that straight hair or long hair is white, when right. that's not true either. Mm-hmm. That again, if we go to um, the continent of Africa, there's all different textures of hair. There's all different lengths of hair. So it's not always about giving into these white sociocultural norms because we have long hair or that she's wearing a weave. And I think her body of work and empowering Black women speaks much larger than what her her hairstyle looks like. Yeah. And all the Black women that she's empowered through her music and has involved in her music to promote them, that we look at those things. Um, So speaking of representation, that on these boards where we hear these things like, we just can't find qualified people of color or... They're just not out there. They're not applying for these jobs. And there was this great meme about Beyonce in one of her videos where she found 100 Black trombonists. <laughs> yes. 100 Black trombonists. You could find one Black person uh-huh. to do your board or to be on this meeting. That we're out there. It's just, how are you looking for us? And then when you do find us, are you actually doing what you need to do to keep us? So that brings us on to another interesting topic. The 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 few people in white-dominated companies and industries who are of colour, who are female, who do make it to positions of seniority and power, how much do you think they've had to change themselves to get there? Whew. That's a that's a tough journey that they had to go through right. to get there. Yeah. Um, having to play a game and not wanting to play a game, having to navigate in spaces where, yes, sometimes you do feel welcomed in spaces that you don't feel welcomed. I imagine those individuals, there is a high emotional, physiological, and financial toll that they've experienced. And then when uh, people of color get into these high-ranking positions, there's this phenomena that um, pits people of color against each other. So again, this is based in oppression too. It's like there can be one. Mm. There can only be one. And this is going to be related to those ideas of tokenism as Mm. well and not seeing that there can be multiple people of color who are skilled and qualified for the job. So they almost get pitted against one each other. Well, Dr. Such and Such did this. How come you didn't do those things? 
or Dr. Such and Such has made brought in this much money, you're not bringing in that type of money. Whereas white people aren't being pitted against each other, that they're looked at more of an individual level where they're being collectively kind of combined together. So then the environment doesn't feel safe and it can feel hard to align with other people of color in those positions as well. So I think that journey to get there for many that they are having to be confronted with oppression and racism and sexism to get to those positions. And then when they arrive there, then those pressures don't necessarily go away. Um, and then, so yes, we need to be in those positions for more exposure and to open up those positions to other people. But still, that's another burden that's being placed on that one person of color. We see this in universities. So um, women faculty and uh, faculty of color, they have all these advisees. They have all this these mentors, uh, mentees that they have. Mm. Because it's like, hey, thank you. Please help me. I'm so glad that you're here. I appreciate you. This has been so hard. Take care of me. So they're doing all this student work and service work, but their tenure and their promotion is based on their publications. Right. It's based on how much money that they're bringing to the university. So they're doing all this service work and they have this labor of emotionally connecting with these other students who are connecting with students who feel marginalized and feel oppressed. That now they're not able to participate in the research the things that's actually going to land them to get promoted. So then they're burned out. Your tenure profile um, doesn't look good. So you don't have your job anymore. It actually hurts them. That the idea that once we get in these positions, we have to now bring everyone with us or we have to save everyone. Right. Detrimental to us um, individually. Let's talk about mentors for a minute, because I know that you find mentors incredibly important. So... Tell me a bit about, if, if you don't mind, maybe one of your mentors that has helped you through some of this stuff in your career. Yeah, um, mentors have definitely been a primary source of my motivation and being able to navigate through hard spaces. So I went to college at University of Georgia, which is a predominantly white institution. And when I first started, this is starting my PhD, when I first started there, I was advised to a white woman faculty member who, I mean, she was fine, but her research was not aligned with where my interests were. Her maybe dedication to cultural diversity was not as strong as mine was. And fortunately, the same year that I started my um, eventual major advisor, he started that same year, Dr. Delgado Romero. And his research interests were much more aligned with my research interests. And he was, again, like that student savior, like bringing all these students. So being able to talk to him, who is a um, Latino man, um, and his experience, there's nuances, but still having experience that racism, um, um, xenophobia, issues around language, that there was a lot that we could connect with on people as people of color. And then being able to talk to him about this was my experience and it's validated and it's understood and it's normed. So um, just completely shifted my four-year career while I was at University of Georgia. And it would, look, it would have looked very different had I not had him as a mentor. Mm. So when we are 
looking for mentors, we do need to have people who understand us or who connect with us. Um, I did a research study that looked specifically at mentorship Mm. or black women, um, psychology trainees, what their mentorship was. And I asked this general question, what's your mentoring experience been like? And they said, oh, I really appreciate mentors. It's so helpful. It's nice to be able to work with a more senior psychologist um, to develop my skills. Okay. What's your experience with Black women mentors been like? And a complete emotional shift. Like, and I think the thing is like, I can breathe. Right. I can breathe when I'm in connection with another black woman. Right. Because, yeah. She's bringing this wealth of wisdom professionally, but she's also bringing her experiences and her wisdom as a black woman. So when I say something, it's understood. It's heard. She's able to name things before I even have to name them. Right. Um, it was hurtful and that was invalidating. That was not okay. To be able to speak life into that mentee in a way that they weren't necessarily getting in their other mentorship. So on first glance, oh, this is what mentorship means to me. It was very generic. But then we thought, talk about the differences in working with um, non-white or non-black women versus working with a black woman. Qualitatively, the experience was different. So we can get great mentorship from people who don't look like us. But sometimes it is important that our mentor has lived experiences that resonate with us as well. So aside from mentors, talk to me about some of your other big influences. Who who has inspired you in your lifetime? Who has shown you that you can be you? <laughs> oh boy. Um, well, I think my number one cheerleader and my number one mentor has definitely been my mother. That Black women, we have this phenomenon that we face called the strong Black woman syndrome, that Black women are considered to be always enduring and always resilient and always strong. And that's certainly exemplified in my mother. She um, was, I think she's 23, had three young children, um, got her nursing degree. She's always been a nurse. She was always working and um, being promoted throughout her journey. Uh, She was doing homework. She was doing hair. She was taking us to games. She was cooking dinner. She was cleaning. She was doing everything. And my father was in the home. He was financially present, but he was not able to be emotionally present in the way that we need him. So all that weight was falling on my mother. Um, So she definitely would be my role model for being strong and being resilient. But that strong Black woman phenomena is birthed in trauma and oppression. Mm. So when... Well, even before we got here, our our journey to our arrival to the U.S. and then being in the U.S., that for Black um, people, for Africans to be enslaved, they had to be dehumanized. I can't see you as a human and then treat you this way. So a part of that dehumanization was in Black women working the way that they were working is that they can do more work and they are stronger. So it's not as impactful on them as it would be a white person or a white woman. 
um, that they emotionally don't connect or they are emotionally resilient because they have to be because my children are being taken away from me and they're being sold mm-hmm. to someone else. So like women, they're not very emotionally expressive because if I express my emotions, I wouldn't be able to function. So this idea of resiliency and strength, again, it is um, benefits us in many ways that we are seen as so strong and resilient, but it's been birthed in oppression trauma, which is hurtful because it dehumanizes, it continues to dehumanize us. This idea that Black women, we are magical. Well, we are magical, but we're not mythical. Right. So I so appreciate my mother's journey. And because of the sacrifices she made, then I was able to excel in the ways that I have. But then I think about my own children. So I have four-year-old daughters. I want their lives to be filled with where they are strong and they're resilient. And then there's so much more too. They are vulnerable. And they can be fearful and they can be unknowing and that those parts of them are as visible and seen as important as these other pieces are. That we just can't look at Black women as this monolithic group of strength and resiliency because then we dishonor the full emotional um, experiences that we have and we pigeonhole them into being something that it just cannot be sustained. So it ends up being more hurtful to us. And I want something different for my kids. Mm. And we're going a bit broader than pitching now, of course, but (laughs) I'm not stopping you. I've got a follow on question. Is there in that case, because I have children as well. um, Is there a decision that you have to make almost of how much to protect them versus how much to expose them? Because you want them to have some of that resilience, but of course, they're your kids, and you you want to protect them as much as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so just making a connection to pitching and changes that that like I keep saying that representation does matter. So when I was a little girl, there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of nice looking black dolls, so I never wanted right. the black. Because they were yeah. always like, like, what is no black person is this skin color? What is this hair? What are these facial features? They were terrible. So you wanted to play with the white dolls because the black dolls were so ugly. Yeah. And then in books, like I was just not represented in those books. Yeah. So I didn't see myself in that. And I love to read as a little girl. But we see this change because people have been making these pitches and there yeah. has been yeah. this um, development. That today, my daughters, they have so many books with little girls that look like them. Yeah. And it's so beautiful that we're reading stories and they're saying, oh, this is me. And oh. my other one says, oh, this is me. So they see themselves in the story. And it's not these stories about, oh, all the things that you've had to overcome. Right. It's about them being adventurous and yeah, running. It's a normal and story. It's a regular story. Yeah. <laughs> it's not about hardship or your yeah. oppression. It's a regular story of living your life and thriving. Um, And we see the same thing in movies, too, where they're able to identify with characters in a way that I was never able to identify with characters. So for my daughters, I'm instilling in them that they are beautiful. They are intelligent. They are strong. Their emotions are important. Um, They are loved, that they are important and special. All those things. While knowing that I am building you 
I'm growing you. I'm supporting you. And somebody will come to you and try to make you forget who you are. Someone is going to say something that is going to try to tear you down and make you forget how intelligent, how beautiful, how smart, how motivated you are. That they're going to face that. So having to do as much prep work as possible, that for when the, those days, because it's going to be multiple days, when those days come, that you don't forget about who you are and where you come from and where your strength and your value lies. I grew up in predominantly white area. So I was for a while, it was just me and my two brothers were the only black kids at the school and they're older than me. So I never saw them. And there was one girl, she was Asian. Um, but I mean, our interactions were so limited, yeah. but there's not a lot of people of color where I initially was in elementary school. And there was one morning where my mother being this superwoman, she had to go to work early. So she dropped me off on at one of my girlfriends, little girlfriends houses to ride the bus with her. And I got on the bus with my friend. So this is in the typical bus that I take. And there was a little boy on the bus who just starts screaming the N word, screaming what? it. What? Five. Okay. So I'm in kindergarten. I have never even heard this word before because my black family does not use the N word. No. Screaming this. And so I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it was bad. And I know it made me feel wrong. Um, I don't remember anything. I don't remember the bus driver saying anything. Uh, but I remember going and sitting in the back of the bus, just not feeling good about myself. And my friend, who was a little white girl, who probably didn't even know what was happening either, mm. she just grabbed my hand and she held my hand for that bus ride. Mm. So for my daughters, what I want is that they don't ever have to experience that because parents are not raising children that are going to be screaming the N-word at someone. Um, but that's wishful thinking because that racism is just real and it's perpetuated through how we are raising our children. But what I want is that for that to be countered with those little girls who will just hold my hand. That my daughters, ideally, they will have their sense of self and that they will have allies and advocates who will be able to support them too. Mm. Wow, that gave me tingles. Mm. There's going to be a lot of middle-aged white men listening to this. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we could and should be doing in this world of inequality that we've been speaking about for the hour? Yeah. So when that person of color comes into that meeting room or that boardroom, understanding that there was a journey for them to get there and to have appreciation for their journey. That if there's a fumble on the words or something is misspoken, that again, there was likely a psychological and emotional labor that was paid for them to even get to that point. So to be aware of that and to use the power that you have to create change that if you're sitting on a panel and all the people sitting next to you are white men, something's been missed. 
that diversity isn't deficient. Diversity is an asset. That when we are bringing together diverse communities, even on college campuses, the research is so clear that when there's diversity on college campuses, the students, their grades are higher, their thinking is more creative, the experiences they have, they express feeling my college experience was better. The same thing's happening on that professional level too, where there's greater diversity, there is greater creativity, there's greater community engagement, that diversity is a benefit. And to look at diversity as a benefit to your company, to your organization, to your market, the way that I may connect with someone could be different from the way that you connect with someone. And that's a a quality that we want. We want to be able to connect with multiple people. So if on the board, it's just you and other white men who look like you, need to do something different. You need to contact Dr. Kimber Shelton for some consultation and, um, but working to diversify your program or your organization so that people of color have those opportunities to come and succeed there. Brilliant. I think that's fantastic advice. Anything that you want to tell me about? What about your books and your practice? I think you just did a a rather too modest plug a minute ago. (laughs) Let's try that again. (laughs) Yeah, so recently released a handbook on counseling African-American women which is such a necessary text that there used to be this idea that Black people don't go to therapy, but we know that that trend is different. And Black people, especially Black women, are coming in for counseling um, because that cultural stigma around counseling is decreasing. And also Black women, we want to be out here living and loving our lives. And we are aware of the barriers and the hardships that we face. So getting some additional support around that. And when Black women come into therapy, they commit be met with therapists who just aren't culturally competent and don't understand the lived experience of Black women or able to connect with Black women in ways that is going to be meaningful and impactful to them. So this text is focused on helping any mental health professional, so psychologists, counselors, um, social workers, medical doctors, psychiatrists, and also administrative people who are going to be... Um, overseeing those other individuals who are working with uh, Black women populations and helping them to understand what our experiences are, what symptoms are that we might be presenting with, and then how to skillfully work with Black women. And then aside from the um, writing that I do, that I do lots of speaking on issues of cultural diversity, cultural competence, working with BIPOC populations, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and providing affirmative therapy to LGBT individuals. And what's the best place online for people to find you? Yeah, so through um, social media, I'm on Instagram at doc.kimber, doc.kimber. And on Facebook, I can be found through my company, KLS Counseling and Consulting Services. So that's at KLS Counseling. Um, and then I also have an organization called Counseling Black Women, which can be found on Facebook or Instagram. And where can we buy the book? Amazon? You can buy it. Yep, Amazon oh. or any other place that books are being sold. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fantastic. Dr. Kimber Shelton, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, not just for all of your tips and advice and, and knowledge, but for your openness 
and your willingness to allow me to almost pry into into your mm -hmm. mind on some of these topics in 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 a slightly naive way and I, I genuinely want to thank you so much for your time it's been so valuable oh i love this conversation thanks so much for having me this has been another episode of pitch masters go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for pitch guy on social media for regular videos on sales psychology storytelling creativity and much more 